Ooh, that was a good, that was nice and full, full body sound on that that pop. I like it. Dude, I'm getting better every day. It's all it's all matters improvement, right? Better yeah, than yesterday. That last reaction video, I got some work to do still. I gotta open some more beers. What's uh what's on the <laughs> menu? Uh this is a Centennial IPA from Founders Brewing. I don't know where it's from, but somebody probably will. I don't want to say the wrong city because last time I did that, somebody called me out. Rightfully so. <laughs> rightfully so. But Yeah, I mean, you gotta yeah. know where the stuff's from that you're drinking. You're you're not a real beer lover, right? Uh I don't know. I disagree with that, but it's okay. <laughs> To each Sarcasm. Sarcasm. Uh, well, today oh, we're yeah. back with a guest who we actually talked with before on our last reaction video. But before we let him kind of officially introduce himself, welcome everyone to the Aged Out Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Fantini, and with me as always is... Evan Worrell. And before we get into it, hit subscribe on the YouTube channel, like, comment on the video if you have anything to add to the discussion. We do our best to respond to everything when we can. Uh, hit us up on social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, to never miss updates about the podcast. Check out uh, our partner, Lone Star Percussion. Use discount code AGEDOUT on any order of $50 or more, and you'll save 10 bucks. So if you need to get a pad, if you need to get a symbol, whatever, it's very easy to get to 50 bucks very quickly with percussion equipment. So save, save yourself a little yes, money. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then patreon.com slash agedoutpodcast for any f- direct financial support you want to kind of toss us if you can. And if not, enjoy listening. And Evan, you want to take it away and we'll get into it? Yeah, sure. Uh, if you watched our last reaction video, then uh, this guest won't be new. Uh, but joining us again uh, with great appreciation for sparing some time, the legend uh, Bill Bachman. Welcome, man. Thanks for joining us. Cool. Thanks a lot. I gotta pick up my phone and go to Lone Star Percussion and take advantage of that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, man, we were pretty jazzed about it. Uh, we just kind of reached out to them, and thankfully they were super awesome to communicate with. Uh, they were like, "Yeah, we love to support people doing stuff for the activity, and obviously, if we can send people their way, then it's kind of a win-win." So uh, we were pretty jazzed about it, and it seems to be working out pretty well. That's yep. one of the only places where you can call. Not sure what you need. And whoever answers the phone, they probably have their master's or doctorate in percussion and have marked for four years, and it's just ridiculous. Yeah, Um, actually, the dude, uh, Sean, who's been helping out with this, I was like, I have heard this name so many times, but through this (laughs) kind of connection, it was the first time I ever talked to him on the phone. (laughs) Uh, So I was like, oh, cool, man, what's up? But for sure, shout out to those dudes. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always fun. You guys know your stuff i stumbled onto it from that original 94 reaction video and i was like wow these guys these guys know things this is <laughs> listen to you know it's not just random yahoos <laughs> well i try not to be super i try not to be vain at all about it uh i think mike and i both feel the same way that fortunately we were able to get a pretty good understanding of things in high school from our instructors, one of which you marched with uh, a couple times, well, like a season and a half, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, But, (laughs) and then very fortunate to just kind of be able to soak in some information over the course of our drumming careers and try to be students of the game, as they say, so. Yep. Yeah, never ends. The more you you realize you don't know squat. (laughs) I know, what is it? uh, you, You don't know what you don't know until you like, no longer don't know it or something. <laughs> I don't know. There's some something like, like that. that. It's along those lines. So uh, a buddy of mine, Dr. Brian Zader, years ago, I just remember this quote. 
It says, when I was, you know, marching Cavaliers, I, you know, I thought I was pretty hot. And then I went off to college and working on my degree, it's like, man, I, I got a lot to learn. And then master's degree, it's like, man, this is ridiculous. And then he got his doctorate. It's like, I don't know, squat. So, <laughs> like a beautiful inverse discovery. Yeah, a blissfully ignorant at first uh, <laughs> throughout my drumming career. I mean, and then. You know, uh, I thought I was pretty sweet when I was in high school. You know, that's that's how it goes. No, we all did. Dude, I definitely did. Then you go to that first camp and you're like, oh. Your eyes are okay. opened. <laughs> yeah, yep. I guess we'll start off that way, too. Uh, that'll be a good segue to just tell us how you got into drumming, um, some influences, mentors, inspirations that you had. Um, take us through that real quick, and then we'll we'll, uh, we'll keep going, man. Sure. Well, first one was um, Phil Collins, and then came Neil Peart. So, okay, quick quick version. Well, I was in third grade, and they had some older people come and show us the instruments for band, and I thought the clarinet was sweet. And so I wanted to get a clarinet, and we went to the store, and they had this clarinet on display, and the lights were on it, and there were all these bills, bells and whistles. It looked like a confusing mess. And then there's a snare drum next to it with two sticks. I said, that looks easy. I'll play that. And that's, <laughs> that's the only reason this whole thing started. It's a pretty unglorious story. Well, but, you're, uh, yeah. you're not the first person that's told us a similar thing like that, where it was a very not thought through, just like knee jerk kind of, that looks cool. I think I'll do that. Like, I know that's yeah. how it was for me, too. I think we've, I think, did Paul Nalesnik, Evan, say that's how his kind of was? Or I th- yeah, yeah. That's what had my a wife. My wife's a middle school band teacher, so she uh, she starts a lot of kids, and she's a clarinet player. But I'm like, yeah. this kid should probably play drums. She's like, no. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you get into something, a buddy of mine, Larry Colley, I marched with 95 cadets, and he was a section leader, 96, aged out. He was, a, I think he was a saxophone player. And then he decided drums were cool, and he got into it. And then just like that, he plays cymbals at Crossman. The next year, he makes a snare line at Crossman, and then he's at Cadets. I mean, so three, uh, how long have you been playing? Three years. So, <laughs> you know, if you want it bad enough and you get actual good information and you actually, you know, most people practice their wrong their whole lives and are forever frustrated. Yeah. He got some good information and obviously was dedicated and just killed it. Heck yeah. yeah. I always tell a lot of people that uh, no matter when they start, it's like, well, if you're willing to put in the time, and just listen to what a smart person says. Like you can get really good really fast. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how much you want to drum and how how much you want to practice. <laughs> yeah, it's like people people with Skype lessons with me and people on DrumWorkout.com. It's like there's always this bell curve of improvement. It's like, well, yeah, you were pushing against the brick wall before you started doing it this way. So what do you expect? Oh my God, I just had a I had a an instance with that with one of my kids uh, that I teach private lessons to. He came back to me, and I usually set some goals for him. Like, all right, this we're at this, and I want you to like hit this goal next week. Yeah. Um, if you work on some other stuff, okay, but like this is the focus. And they came back one day, and uh, I was like, "So, what'd you work on this week?" He's like, "Well, I, I found cheesy poofs online," and I'm like, "Bro, that ain't <laughs> it. Like, you can't play accent tap right now. Like, what are you talking about?" I was like, you skipped from like letter C to letter V in the alphabet. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, back when Jeff Queen and I were always playing Vic Firth booth at WGI and whatnot. 
It's like some kids just, you know, gets to the pad and ticket it, ticket it, ticket it, and Jeff looks at me. It's like, Bill, that's all of our problems right there. <laughs> it's like let's look at the fundamentals down, and then you can actually play that for real. Yeah. But nonetheless, so, have fun. You know, I don't mean to be fundamental beating old codger killjoy. I still am. I one hundred percent. I mean, you got to keep it fun. Like, yeah, let's figure out yeah. ways to play yeah. accent tap not to the metronome like what's a song that you like that's at 140 bpm and like let's throw that on or something i mean i don't know something like that but anyway digress we, we already went on our first rabbit hole so yeah. <laughs> you, you did not want the clarinet wanted to play the drum <laughs> circle back so, yeah i got a remo practice pad the little gray rimmed kind and ludwig ludwig sticks with a sweet like anodized blue looking printing on them and I was in my mom's VW Rabbit driving home from the mall, and I played my first buzz roll. I was like, all right, I got this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then, uh, so it just went on from there, and then my best friend's mom introduced me to Genesis. So back when I was almost a blank slate, suddenly I'm listening to the, the real deal, the old school prog Genesis. So I'm next thing you know, I'm drumming along in 7-8 with Phil Collins, learning infinite amounts of licks. I don't know what's going on, but I just, I love it. I hear it, and I'm just pumped, and I can't wait to drum. And at that point, I'm addicted. So, you know, the rest is history, pretty much. That's awesome. Uh, I think I saw, too, in a, a previous interview you did, that it was around 10th grade when you were kind of introduced to the, like, drumline side of things. Is that correct? Yeah. We had a senior core guy come out, and he played a role on a set of tritums. Yeah, I'm older than some of you. Yeah, and he's going like, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, like that's that's cool, that's exciting. I want that. And I ended up playing snare drum, match grip, in high school, and got some decent fundamentals. It's weird because I went to, okay, a little 1990 Dutch boy camp. This guy just loaded up a van full of us green greenians, and we headed up to Buffalo. And so we have this camp, and they have this old cadets guy, and it's like it's like North Korea in this room, and it's just brutal. And, <laughs> and they're playing double beat, and I was, you know, I couldn't play traditional, so they just put me on a set of quads. I'm like, oh my gosh, these things are heavy. Which drum is which? And, and so we're playing double beat, and he starts around the bottom bass, and he gets all the way person by person. Everybody's just getting shredded. And I'm like, these drums are heavy. I'm miserable. <laughs> just get me out of here. And so I played, and I stopped, and he points me, like, see, guys, that's the best double beat in the room. I was like, whoa, what? Me? I mean, don't get me wrong, I was still clueless, but that day I had that thing. And so, yeah, I decided that drum corps was pretty cool after watching some of that stuff. And then 91, I went back. I learned how to play traditional, sort of. I can still fake it to this day. And then I didn't make it, but I played top bass in Dutch Boy. So in 1991, that's my first year. And oddly enough, I remember I was on the bus driving to the first show, and I look out the window, and there are these white pants with maroon stripes and the, these maroon jackets, and I'm looking. That's, that's Madison, right? Like. I can only name six drum corps. I didn't even know which one was which, and yet I'm on the field. You know, my first drum corps show, I'm out there missing my dots and blowing notes. <laughs> I, I was hating it. 
That's hilarious. But, you know, with time, you figured it out. So that's how the, the whole drum corps thing started. I think by grace, I figured out how to play traditional grip well. Um, my seventh and eighth grade private teacher, I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast, but uh, he goes by the name of Greg Strauss, and he marched, I believe it was like, I, it was either 1980 or somewhere in the 80s, Bridgman. He played uh, Tom's. And I took lessons with him. And he didn't teach me traditional at all. Uh, thank God, because I probably would have just developed way too many bad habits. Yeah. Uh, but then my freshman year of high school, after taking two years of lessons with him, I did play snare drum at that school. It was traditional grip. It was probably awful. But then I transferred schools, played match grip for two years until the one of the instructors decided that everybody had the fundamental chops who had been playing, taking lessons with him. We could make the switch and play traditional. But they they told us, like, you guys can't play it, and it doesn't sound good, then we're not going to do it. So I was pretty grateful for that. But, uh, uh, yeah, or else I could have developed many, many, many bad habits to try to make things happen in a not very efficient way. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is you would have been in my boat because I'm pretty sure my left hand like went through like four or five evolutions all the way through like freshman year of high school through finally getting into drum corps like my after my freshman year of college I had my my sound Demond was my private instructor that you marched with Bill uh, yeah. he was really good at motivating he was really good at getting you excited and like beating the crap out of you if that makes sense like <laughs> Like uh-huh. in, in in the right way, like chopping out. He was great at like just reps, reps, reps. He 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 gave good information, but it, when it came to like the nitty gritty of the left hand technique, he was more about just like we're just gonna do it a lot and you're gonna figure it out. So it was more of just kind of learn by doing. And so I got like pretty decent <clears throat> chops pretty young, and then realized by the end of high school my sound quality was just like terrible, thin, just like. <laughs> paper thin, but I had fast hands. I could play fast. My vocabulary was really high. He was really big on the grid. So I gridded a lot of stuff at a young age. And so I I got a really solid foundation, but I almost did it in reverse. Or ideally you want to develop that like fundamental motion and sound quality first and then layer in all the cool stuff. I kind of did it the opposite and then had to like work backwards as I got older to rebuild that foundation and kind of take two steps back to take a lot of steps forward. And yeah, it was, it was an evolution. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. That's typical. You know, you just go with the exciting, you know, you're playing Diddy, not realizing that nothing you're playing is accurate or applicable in an actual, you know, situation with another human being with sticks. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's funny. So you had the best double beat in the room. But you ended up your first. Was that the first year you marched Dutch Boy in '91? No, that was that was the camp's year. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I, I wasn't I was, wasn't gonna wear those quads or no, that ain't it. Because <laughs> you marched bass drum your first year, right? Yeah, so that would have been 2000. Oh gosh, 1991. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so you know the whole time I'm playing drum set and just drinking that Kool Aid and loving it. You know, the, the wild kid who sounds like a machine gun with drums tuned too high without a metronome to be found. And, you know, <laughs> typical. And so after Tour 91, I figured things out in mid-July. I was like, okay, I just did a whole show. I knew all my dots. I didn't miss any beats. I got this now. And it, there was like a day when the yelling stopped and I was just, <laughs> I was no longer the problem child. <laughs> 
But uh, so I was on my drum set playing stuff, and I was like, oh, let me do some marching stuff. And I flipped to traditional, and it just sucks. You know, my snare is not tilted and it's not high. And, and then I played mass. I play so much better. This Why can't I just uh, – I'll just play quads. And then that, that was it. <laughs> and I, I remember I ran down the stairs, and I saw my dad in the living room. I was like, Dad, I'm going to play quads. It's like okay, and you know I don't, have, I don't have to play this this upside down stupid jacked up grip for a tilted drum, and and you're like, well, what about all the arounds? And you know, well, he didn't say around, but you know, all the different things. I was like, ah, oh, I don't know, it's fine. It'll work itself out. <laughs> and so there again, unceremoniously, that's the moment where oh, I'm gonna play quads. I would say that's a fairly uh, nuanced question for most dads to ask well what do you what about all like the all the drums like i ah, will figure it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> so you end up doing a couple more years at dutch boy 92 93 playing yeah. quads i'm assuming yep yeah uh, 90 and you marched you marched with the mon 93 is that right yeah 92's right. line was really actually good I mean, July 3rd, you know that uh, pre-parade show in Bristol, Rhode Island? Yes, mm-hmm. I've done yeah. the Bristol Parade. Yeah. You've, you've, it's long. Yeah, that's only good when you're on staff and you're just kicking it in the shade and, <laughs> you know, maybe passing out water if it's your shift. But uh, we played a tickless show that night. I was like, all right. Heck, yeah. mean, we, didn't, we didn't have a, a stacked book of insanity, but nonetheless... So it was actually a good line. Dude, that you just brought back so many memories with that pre-show of Bristol Parade. And like, I don't know if they did this then, but all the cores that were in the parade when I marched, they would get together and park their food trucks in the same parking lot. And we would eat off of all of them. So I remember like after that parade, I ate off of five different cores. Because like us, cadets, Boston, and two others, I want to say like Cavaliers and somebody else, and like me mid tour, I was like, I'll eat all the food I can. But that parade is very long, yeah. and all those Boston people are just like, Happy Fourth! Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. When you're marching Dutch boy, you got to be strategic about relationships. It's like you're you're gonna starve and die if you don't meet some of the cadets. And <laughs> <laughs> so we were we ended up really good friends with the cadet squad line. We we drum with them and whatnot. Didn't uh, didn't Pipitone march Dutch boy too? Yeah, back in 89, I think it was. Okay, because I think DeMond has mentioned Pipitone, because Pipitone went to Moorhead, didn't he, Evan? Yeah, that he was part go of to Moorhead. He taught DeMond, that was part of that whole crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another funny food truck story. I used to go around, and I mean, the people working the food truck, they don't know any different. I would go, and I knew people in other cores, and I'd be talking to them like, oh, yeah, we're having ice cream Sundays," And I'm like, what? I'm just like, take off my shirt. They don't know. I'm, I'm tan, I'm skinny, probably in this core. We'll go yep. to the Cavaliers food line. Like, oh, I want an ice cream sundae. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Man, one year when I was teaching Blue Coats, we had, I mean, she was universally known as the food Nazi. And the story was she used to be obese, and so she was on this mission to make everybody skinny. It's like, you know, we're burning 2,000 calories every hour or something stupid. And, you know, ravioli. So we get like three of those ravioli chunks, the Chef Boyardee. And so I, I had a system. The first time I, I go through the line, I had my hat on. And I was like mopey personality guy with very little eye contact. I get in the line, no hat. You know, next thing you know, bushy tail, squirrely guy, all excited. And, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do. 
creativity. Yeah, there's no there's there's no way that anyone's going on a caloric deficit like a marching <laughs> drum corps. I mean, no, just yeah, not at all. Yeah. Do you do you guys know of Willie Higgins? I've I heard know the name. who he is. Is he live in Ohio now? No, no, that's Eric. He's still uh, Dartmouth High School. I know he, the name Willie Higgins. I bet if I text Justin right now, he'll be like, you know. So he, he was like the cadet's mascot. I mean, you talk about Sergeant Slaughter. This guy was awesome. And uh, so Bristol, Rhode Island, there was a short break where we actually paused and we weren't playing for a second. And so out walks Willie right in front of us. And he's got this big plate of sushi or whatever. And we're all just sweating and just want to die. And he takes this big bite in front of it, and he puts it in front of his front of his mouth, and oops, drops it on the ground. <laughs> oh! <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's how it goes. Oh my gosh. Oh man, that's cruel. I love these stories. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you, you you get your your few years of Dutch boy here, where you're really initiated into the realm of drum corps. After that '93 summer where you decided in your mind, like, all right, I'm going to check out something new. And why was it cadets? <laughs> yeah. Let me back up to 93. Okay. So a bunch of us wanted to go. I wanted to go to cadets because we drummed together all summer. And I, we were already kind of broskies and whatnot. And and so a buddy of mine from the baseline was talking to me into going to star. And I sort of caved. I was like, okay, we'll go to star, whatever. And so there's so many could have shows in 93. It's kind of crazy. I was at Berkeley and they had this Berkeley day of percussion and UMass drumline was there. And I was out on the sidewalk with my Dutch boy jacket, you know, just working it being the man. And so this, this older guy could stand, comes up and stands sort of next to me. I was like, this is, this is weird. This guy's in my bubble. And I kind of looked at him and okay, walked, strolled away this way. <laughs> Turns out it was Tom Hannum. Nice. And if I just looked at him or said hi, if either one of us said hi, the connection probably would have been made, and I probably would have ended up marching quads at Star. <laughs> you know, they needed people. They ended up with three guys that year. And then, uh, would that have been so, for the '93 summer? Just about. So then the car broke down to go to Star of Indiana, and so it's like, all right, screw it. What? I should have just come on. I'm me. I do what I want to do. I should have just taken charge of my destiny, gone solo down to cadets and done it right. So I went down to the second camp and I play and there's five quad players who are all moved in already to the Tex basement in New Jersey. And I didn't know, I, I, I was stupid. I, I came there with flam thing all worked out, but I didn't know the basic diddle thing. It's like, duh, you're not going to get that far. You don't know that. And so I was just playing on a pad the whole time. And it was after finals, and I was just burnt and just ready to go home. So Unks, he, I, I didn't even want to audition for Unks. But he's like, no, come on, come on, let's do it. And so I was like, all right. And I went in there, and I played Santa Clara's 92 shopping spree and Santa Clara's 92 threes. And, and Unks is sitting there at a desk, some teacher's desk with his feet up on it, just smiling and kind of like laughing. And he's like, I, I don't get why you don't want to march. And I was just in such a fog that I didn't say, it's like, Tom, you got five guys moved into the basement. And you're like, I'm too late. Why are you? So, you know, just being a young kid. <laughs> and so I ended up back at Dutch Boy in 93. But that's that's one of those coulda, shoulda. And then in 94, I walked into the room and Tom and I converged. Like, hey, Bill, good to see you. 
earlier I walked in the room and one of the quads starts jumping up and down. He's here. He's here. <laughs> so, yeah. So it was like, finally. All right. Cause after 93, it's like, Oh my gosh, 93 cadet squads. That's where it's at. So there was no question. That was kind of the place to go in my opinion at that time to play quads. Yeah. That show, uh, um, in that drum line were phenomenal. I think there's a lot of, discussion back and forth with like 93 star 93 cadets like if you'd have told me either one of those cores won the fred sanford or either one of those cores won the championship i'd be like they deserved it yeah. i don't think it matters yep. um both were just so so good uh 93 cabbies were good that summer too um but i like to go back and watch old school drum core but mike's <laughs> Probably like I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I've seen Star Show and I've seen Cadets '93 Show once each. <laughs> I I say that on here forever. Cadets I, Show to tame the perilous skies. That's a good great. one too. Well, yeah, I, I I've said it on here many times. I've never I was never that kid even when I was younger that would go learn a bunch of old licks. I watched like me neither. Mid, I mid, I watched mid 2000s Cadets lot videos because I wanted I wa I wanted to march for Tom Monks because the whole Demond thing and that was where I wanted to go and all I did was watch Cadets videos and like all right how do I do this what do I have to do to reach the promised land and uh, <laughs> so even now like I never Evan will show me old historic shows and like that's really cool but I probably never would have gone out of my way to go watch it without his influence so it's been a good thing to open my eyes to more and kind of become less of a drumhead and appreciate outside of my little realm. All right. So you were talking about Willie Higgins. I knew I'd heard the name before. I just texted like my high school instructor. I was like, dude, where have I heard this name? He uh -huh. was like, I heard that Willie Higgins used to record cassette tapes of himself playing through the show music and send it out to like the members in the line be like, all right, now when you play this phrase, this is kind of what I think about, and this is something to be on the lookout for. And I was like, dude, that is nuts. Like, I couldn't imagine that, like, a tech sending me a MP3 now, like, playing through the whole show and being like, all right, so this is what you're going to watch out for. This is probably going to be a problem spot for everybody. This is what we want to think about when we get to that spot. That is a, a level of nuance that I can appreciate. Yeah, he was great. If you weren't five minutes early to a rehearsal, you were late. And you're like, you, you might be on a bus home. You don't know. So, like, I, I told him I was – I kind of did a little guest thing with Cadets Drumline this year, cyber style. And I was talking about I am confident that I have no idea just how much I learned from Willie Higgins about <laughs> just you know, life skill and commitment. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, really cool. That's awesome. Dude, those, pe those types of people that just impact you in that way – are unforgettable. I, I have like a list in my head going that, that I could, yeah, rattle off. But anyway, so you go to 94. Obviously, Tom's like, great to see you again. Quad member, vet. Dude, he's here. So you're in. You pretty much go through the audition, make it. At Was there any point in that summer where you guys realized that, all right, this is probably a special group of dudes. Like, we kind of, we got, we're gelling. We're vibing. Like, we're just playing some stuff that is really sick or did it just come together at the end or was it that way all summer it started at the thanksgiving camp okay <laughs> the very beginning. yeah so you know when you just play clean and just things are clean and then you play more clean stuff you know by the time you get it's like because now i'm a professional musician playing drum set and whatnot and we'll go and sometimes i'm reading charts or i'm doing this and 
you get people afterwards like, man, how long have you guys been playing together? Well, that was their first time doing it. Like, no way. It's like, well, if you <laughs> actually have the skills and experience, then, you know, if you have a bunch of good ingredients, you end up with something good. Yeah. And so, but that year, the section leader ended up bailing, so it was down to three, and then we got a guy back, and then I had a hernia right after death camp, and went home, got an operation, so I didn't, my first show was, like, early July, so it was a very storied summer before, finally, all four are there again, and things are firing they were firing, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> as anyone can witness in the two reaction videos we've done now, they were certainly firing. And not just you guys, but the whole the whole battery ensemble. Yeah, it was um, a good year, good bunch of folks. So end up doing two years of cadets. Um, fast forward, age out. Did you want to go back and teach? Did you kind of just like be like, oh, I guess I'll go back and do this? What was that, that yeah, transition I like? I mean, as a young gun, you know, I would have given my left kidney for that quad line, just doing anything to max it out. So I wanted to teach. Ended up getting a call from the Bluecoats, and that was my only option. So I was like, all right, here we go. And, uh, yeah, I was like Sergeant Slaughter there. Because, <laughs> yeah, which is, you, 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 if you know me, I was like, I can't imagine that, but... It was one of those things where, for the culture, I brought darkness in order for there to be light. And then once they saw us, like, you know, the first, I remember we learned how to rehearse doing one drill set. And I spent probably over an hour teaching them one drill set. Basically, here's how you start. Here's how you stop. And not really cleaning anything, just getting functionality. And so there was a massive culture shock. But then they realized, oh, this is... This is what being good is like, and we like. <laughs> and uh, so, it's funny how there's a correlation between how much you enjoy something and how good you are at it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of started a good direction over there. But I also ended up in North Texas at that point. Yeah. So at 95 Pasic, I had we were hanging out with uh, watching a buddy Jim Yakis at North Texas. So we went to this rehearsal. And these guys start drumming in 95. And my head basically went, okay, I wanted to be the best quad player the world had ever seen. I wanted to be in the best line I'd ever seen. That's how I ended up at Cadets. And now there's this. So I need to go do this. Boom. So that, it, you know, the whole thought process lasted about 15 seconds. As I'm just, <laughs> you know, like I want to max out this art form, whatever I can do. And so that's how I ended up going over there. Which we talked about that a little bit, watching the the clip kind of thing. That is a very similar mindset that I had to my approach to college in general. Um, when I went to Moorhead State, mm -hmm. like I had been taught in high school by two dudes who went to Moorhead State. They told me so many stories of just them drumming. There's this wall outside the like music building where people just be like, oh, they call it the wall, and you just throw up, and in any given point in the day, there's somebody out there with a pad. And you yep. just walk down there and drum. Um, and so I was like, yes, I want that. I was like, I'm going to go there. Don't know what I'm going to major in, but I'm going to go there. Yep. Um, so that was just kind of like my step, and similar to what you just said. Like, oh, I want to be a part of that. Don't don't care how, just I'm going to do that next, and I'll figure the rest out. Yep. Um, and I love that. Obviously, 
Moorhead back then and UNT, where you went, North Texas, kind of had a basic rivalry, I would say, going for a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Moorhead won their first PASIC event, uh, which is basically the equivalent of WGI these days for people who don't know. Yeah, uh, they did the they did the college division of the marching percussion, and I think Moorhead won their first championship in '88, and then again in '92, and then maybe again '94, somewhere around there. I don't know something, but yeah, it was a big deal back then. It was dude. That stuff super competitive. I know you talked about like so. What was that like for you're going to school at UNT? In my head, I guess I picture a rehearsal sequence way more robust than WGI today because, like, independent groups just meet up on the weekends. But I bet you guys were just like, all right, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, Thursday, got rehearsal, guys. Yeah, well, there's a, a place called Bane, and that was the, the drum room right outside of that, like the wall, meets you at Bane. It's just, and there was a key. So there was this mallet that was always left in a little dirt planter next to it. And all you had to do, it was an old mallet, and you slid the mallet down, and you unlatched the door. It was one of those <laughs> everybody knew that anybody could break in at any second, but please go ahead, because we know you're drumming constantly and look the other way. But, uh, yeah, so it was absolute drum culture all the time. So, And I started unofficially teaching a couple of different guys who were in the D-line at that point, who, you know, they both went on to March Bluecoats, where I was teaching, and aged out of Blue Devils after the Blue Coats thing kind of disbanded and yeah, just kind of ruled, did blast, toured the world. You know, those guys did great. But, it's so funny you talk about the mallet. Uh, sorry, Dr. Mason, who's currently at Moorhead, but uh, we used to, uh, <laughs> and it, I guarantee you they don't have the same access that we did then, but there was a key that you had and one student got it and this happened years and years and years ago. But then everybody just made copies of it. It's like, oh, let's go yeah. to 80s hardware. And everybody makes a copy of the key so we can all get in at 3 a.m. in the morning if we want to go drum. Yep. Um, that kind of got axed as the years went on. But that's really, really funny. <laughs> yeah. So it was definitely a culture shock going there and learning from Rennick. So there was an official class, I don't know, a couple days a week or something like that. And so Paul would just pull out who knows what. And you kind of figure it out. And when I got there, I was like, crap, you know. By the, by the fourth rep or something, I finally figured it out. He was on to the next thing, and you just get together, and he'd just pull out random stuff or make it up. And So you had to you had to learn how to learn by rote. I mean, you also had to read your butt off, but you had to learn, and you had to learn how to figure things out on the spot, on the fly, under pressure. And so I'd always go home and shed the crap out of whatever was thrown at me that I wasn't ready for. And then, okay, oh, no, I'm ready, I'm ready. And, of course, the next time, it's all a totally different thing, and it's the same cycle. <laughs> but it was cool because it forced me to learn the figure-it-out skill. And it was not, here are our five exercises that we're going to pound every day and then jump a show music. You know, we do, you know, two-hour class, we do an hour and 45 of exercises, and then, oh, here's the show, you know, in the last 20 minutes going over time. And... You know, the show would always work itself out pretty well because if you know how to drum, it's just a different order of the same stuff. That's that's something I try to hammer with the kids that I work with. I'm like, look, if you trust me and just do these fundamentals and we do the, all this exercise stuff, the show music will get better by default. 
and none of them ever believe me until until like halfway through the season where we've just been doing slow exercises, slowly working them up, working on our hands, and then we haven't really spent time cleaning the book. And then all of a sudden we like, all right, we're gonna take this up like thirty clicks, and then it's just like pretty good. And their eyes just get real wide and go, oh, he wasn't he wasn't lying <laughs> to us. Like that's, that's how yeah. it works. Yeah, when I get people on drumworkout.com, I just tell them, follow the rules. Do exactly what I say, exactly the way I say it. Write down a list of, you know, we're, we're playing one simple thing. Here's a list of seven mistakes not to make and to make sure. And if you are absolutely anal retentive and you get rep after rep after rep, then you will preemptively solve 50,000 problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when that bell curve of getting better. And when they actually do the workouts, uh, like I teach at Marcus High School where Ken and Wiley's been at the helm forever. They're and, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a great program. So I just, I come in and help out sort of behind the curtain. And so I had kids who I taught for two or three years, you know, really good players. And I was like, they, then COVID hit. Like, well, what are we going to do? Like, well, these guys know my shtick, but you know what? Here, drumworkout.com, 44 Modern Rudiments, do these workouts with me. And you actually play along with me and you match me. And the whole time I'm kind of coaching you and guiding you and giving tips. And I know what screw-ups they're doing. So I'm telling people, make sure you're not doing this. You know, like, how are you? It's like you were watching me through the counts. Like, you're not that special. I've seen it before. And yeah, so yeah. I've done guys, it myself thousands of times. Yeah, these guys who I thought knew my shtick after actually doing the workouts – oh my gosh, their hands just went through the roof. So it, it's fun when it, you see something that actually works and there's this, you know, information's cool, but to put it into practice and have an effective method to do so, that's cooler. I Yeah, that, that makes so much sense because when I teach, whether it's teaching visual, which I do a lot now, or teaching private lessons, just knowing what to look for is so instrumental in my delivery and that only comes because i've spent thousands of hours doing it and screwing up myself so i know like this is my tendency this is what i know to look for it's not rocket science it's just physiology and physics like that's just the way it works um so people like how do you know what to look for i'm like because i've screwed up a hundred more times than you have at it (laughs) that's why (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah Technique stuff. I've found that people love to pit technique against musicality. It's like, well, technique is all that speed and the chops and whatnot. Shouldn't we be talking about music? Like, it's this higher echelon of existence. It's like, we are. If your <laughs> technique, musicality will fly right out of your technique if you fix your technique and get out of your own way. So... All right, if you ask Alexa to beatbox, Alexa says boots and cats and boots and cats and, you know, so there's your basic, <laughs> <laughs> your basic group. So, quick story. Um, actually, Brian Zader, once again, I was doing a clinic at a day of percussion kind of thing he had at Texas A&M years back. And I had the whole drum line, sorry, the whole percussion studio, like 25 people in the semicircle around the drum set. And I had this guy come up and play, you know, the Billy Jean boots and cats. And it was weird, you know, it sucked, it was bad. (laughs) You looked at the room and it was awkward because this is our friend, but everybody knows that sucks. And so, so, okay, hold on, hold on. And so I said, okay, 
on your right hand, get more of the middle finger. You know, this index finger, that full come up front, that's your low, light, fast micromanagement. Get rid of that. That's nothing but tension right now. So second finger fulcrum, turn your wrist off. I want you to sort of molar whip and flop from the forearm. We got that. Now your backbeat, don't hit the drum. Let the stick crash into it. Go ahead and whip that sucker too. And so, you know, I just basically limb by limb took him through it. And then he starts playing, and I'll kind of try to replicate how this happened. But he starts playing, and then I just jumped and grabbed his sticks and said, look. So he goes, got to stop, look. And, you know, all 25 people were smiling and bobbing their heads. And so yeah. he didn't go back in time and listen to R&B in whole, his whole life or anything. It's like you fixed the technique. And there's a musicality right there. So that goes for, I don't differentiate between drum set, orchestral, and drumline stuff. If a hand has a stick, you can play something or you can't. You can make it sound good or you can't. And so there, there it is. The musicality technique will just get out of your own way and let nature do its thing. But most people, again, they're pushing against the brick wall and they just keep on doing what they have been doing. Well, that's yeah, man. I- I mentioned ahead, earlier Mike. about like my sound quality when I was younger. That's yeah. one of the things that helped me improve my sound quality was getting out of my own way. I was yep. trying to over manipulate, over control the stick instead of just kind of starting the motion and letting, like you said, nature take its course. And I'm kind of along for the ride just to kind of nudge yep. the sticks in the right direction, which is kind of how I think about things now. And it's like you just really got to get out of your own way and just kind of they'll yep. do a lot of the work for you. And you got to trust the training. You got to earn the right to trust the training. Mm-hmm. There's a story I've told where I was in a lesson with a DCI snare drum guy playing really advanced flam stuff and whatnot. And I always have a music stand next to me for the metronome. And so I had, you know, my I was about to demonstrate a whole big chunk of something, and my inner idiot said, you know, this guy's good. You better not screw this up. And so you know, I start to play. And then a text message comes on. I was like, ooh, let me read the text message. I can play better. And I read the whole text message and just fired the whole thing out perfectly. And then I immediately told him what happened. It's like I've earned the right where I will play better if I get out of my own way and trust the training. But you have have to earn that. To go along with your point of technique and musicality work in tandem, if you are applying – so you're talking about like – your grip pressure and your front fulcrum and your second fulcrum. And if you're figuring out the technique to play bucks the correct way, for instance, with a really relaxed front fulcrum, engaging the wrist, engaging like that back fulcrum and allowing everything to be super relaxed, then that technique is going to offer you a warmer, more open sound, which is going to facilitate the musicality that people are wanting anyway. So yeah. yeah. It's kind of on that note, I, I need to go into the wood for 40 days and 40 nights and contemplate this, but I'm pretty sure it can kind of boil down to a matter of using the muscles further back whenever possible. So the further away from the beat of the stick the muscles are that you're using, the more the nature and flow that you're going to get. Except, of course, when it, you know, if you're reefing something, obviously you better be all up front with that little yeah. index. Yep. Take notes, kids. Some- I know Gold some, people right there. Asked, some people have asked me about this before um, that I teach private lessons, and it's going to be super hard to explain over a podcast without the visualization. But in my right hand or left hand, if you're playing match grip, 
when I play Bucks, I think about the motion happening almost from like the pinky finger to like the wrist on the bottom end. Like yeah. that's where like my motion is happening from because it allows me to stay so relaxed in the mm-hmm. front hand. Uh, the left hand is a little bit different, um, but still, I'm more focused on the weight of the pinky finger and the end or in the ring finger to produce that like natural gravity sucking into the pad rather than like pushing down into it. Yeah. Uh, that's really weird to like describe it in words, but without oh, showing. But a couple of my percussive paradigms that I totally dismiss, and I've pretty much publicly declared war on. One is German grip. German grip is so full of technical deficiencies and just physics dictates it's inferior on so many levels. And, you know, that hearing that, people may have their feathers rustled, but I, I can make a logical case using the laws of nature for it. Um, and the other one is the fulcrum, the concept of the thumb on the side of the stick and the finger on the other making an axle for the stick to rotate on. You want anybody who can play well with relaxed hands, the fulcrum is always a ceiling on top of the stick under which the stick pivots. It's infinitely more relaxed. It's like if you're having a garage sale and you got the little cardboard sign on the picket, are you going to squeeze that stake on either side and drive it into your grass? No, you're going to put a palm on top and just sort of lean on it and down it goes. So yeah. that's what your thumb is for an American grip. I mean, I make part of my living Americanizing people's left hands. They know American <laughs> on the right. Well, my right hand is so much better. Well, yeah, because you're playing the right symbol in French grip. So when you go to normal grip, you're using those attributes with the Gandalf thumb on top. Your left hand doesn't know that. Um, okay, the Gandalf thumb. I was getting ready to say, what the heck is a Gandalf thumb? <laughs> <laughs> Just one of those little teaching devices. So Gandalf says, you shall not pass. Absolutely. That's- See, I'm so a big Lord of the Rings the, uh, nerd, so uh, I appreciate the bo- this. The Bordock. What's it called? The Balrog. Balrog. Yeah, okay, there it is. <laughs> I'm going to believe you guys on that one. So, uh, yeah, if you play Bucks, the stick wants to rebound back up. But if you have the thumb on the top side, 45 of the stick, you're blocking the path. But Gandalf thumb says to the stick, you shall not pass. I and so that. instead of just squeezing with the back fingers into the palm, now you have the front of the hand on top of the stick further out from the fulcrum with more leverage. So you have twice the ways to stop it, such that it's easier to stop it faster so that sooner you can play lower and lighter. And so just never mind finger control. That's the French grip attribute of the stick pivoting under the thumb as the fingers are going to town. So Gandalf holds the stick down so the fingers can go to town. It's actually holding the stick further down in the hand, closer to the ends of the fingertips. So... I mean, that's that's every Christmas, all four fingers send Gandalf thumb a Christmas card, thanking him for setting them up for success all year long. <laughs> and and if, you, if you don't have that, then you're struggling. You can get it done. And, and by the way, all that begs the question, well, why does this German grip exist? Because drums were on slings. If it's closer to your body, you know, if it's resting against your gut to get the beat in the center of the head, your hand goes flat and the stick turns in from the forearm. So, but that's why you watch any, any DCI, WGI snare drummer that knows what's up, you see a little bit of the chicken wing. It's like the chicken wing is there to facilitate the American grip and straight line elbow to bead, which makes it so much easier. Yes, it'd be more relaxed from the shoulder to let the arm hang at the side, but then your, your hand has to work 10 times harder. 
Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And unless you're playing on a tilt, obviously, then things change yeah. a little bit as far as like. And I, and I've always been under the. You were talking about like the uh, the connection between the thumb and the index too, and I have really short fingers actually. So the way that my hand looks wrapped around the stick is not going to be the same as a person with like fingers that are two inches longer than mine for say. So like I, I try to manage the gap in between the thumb and index, but I don't try to control it as long as like the connections are correct. Um, the thumb is flat and then there's a good connection on the index finger, but I don't, I don't really try to micromanage or make it look quote unquote, the exact same as mine because nobody has the same size hand as mine. (laughs) Yeah, doing something in order to look the same is stupid. It's all, I mean, why would you torture somebody into making them play differently just for vanity's sake? Hello, it's- drum corps for multiple decades. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to have the same si- same height snare drums. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I've thought about getting Skype students from Australia, Japan, just all over the world and having them all record two bars of eight on a hand at 100 beats a minute and just putting this little mashup of it because they all look identical because they're all playing in the most efficient and effective natural way. Dude, you should do that. (laughs) 100%. That'd be awesome. That'd be a good YouTube video. You get Uh lots of views. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I guess we're, we're talking about practicing and practice strategies and practice just technique technique in general and music musicianship which my practice skyrocketed individually and from a personal standpoint uh around my sophomore year of high school which would have been 2000 and it would have been in the spring of 2004 no yes that's correct spring of 2004 or fall of 2004 spring of 2005 which was around the time that I bought my first Vic Firth heavy hitter pad. Oh, nice. Which, which at the time was synonymous, Vic Firth heavy hitter. But that was not always the case, was it? It was not. So there was a company talking to me about doing a signature quad pad, and they didn't want to do big size and small size, and they they just didn't want to do it justice. And then I had snare drum pads with zones, and I had thinner rubber and extra thin rubber, and I, I came up with all this stuff, and they didn't want to do it right. And so, kind of like I mentioned earlier, it's like, what am I thinking? I just need to do this myself. Are we still alive? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. We got Skype for a second. <laughs> and so, I just said, all right, I just got to do this myself. And so, at the time, Chris Romanowski was my roommate, and we started messing around. Basically, I I built the first ever quad pad that was actually to scale with the drums. And then, you know, I'm playing on it. I was like, it just grabs. So it it sucks. Um, Let me get... So I went to a music store and I bought these old 1970s Ludwig Strider bass drum heads. And, you know, for two bucks a piece from their attic. And so I cut them out as laminates. Well, what would feel like a drum head? Drum head. So I glued those on. And, you know, I played... Like all this stuff on them, and I started jumping up and down in the kitchen, and I was so excited that this thing works, and so pissed off that I didn't have this years ago when I desperately needed it. 
And so, yeah, he saw that and he's like, this is pretty cool. And so we joined forces and that's when all the heavy hitter pads started out of the garage in SoCal. And that was in 2001? 2000, yeah, 2001. Okay. And so it, it may seem easy. Oh, I just glue rubber to wood. It's like, no, it took me about six months to find the right stuff to do that. It's like most things. It's a lot trickier than you think. And so I just, I was barely, you know, I was living on 600 bucks a month or something stupid riding BMX when I wasn't making pads and just busted it. Just 12, 14 hour days, earned it. And then we got a load to PASIC. In 2001, we went to PASIC. And it was one of the most nervous I've ever been in my life because so much was riding on the launch of this product. And What city was it at? Nashville. Okay. So we had probably literally 700 pounds of pads lo- loaded in the back of a random minivan. <laughs> you know, like practically... Riding the axles. Yeah. I know, practically bottoming out. Like you had to hit bumps in the road, try to hit it perpendicular so you don't start to speed wobble, you know? And uh, so we got there and it stole the show. I mean, everywhere around the convention, you saw purple pads walking around. And near the end, I literally had to decide whose money to take first because this is what everyone had been wanting. So it was a round pad with thin rubber and thinner rubber and a laminate on it that actually clicked and you could articulate it. So without a laminate, you you can't hear well enough. You know, no matter how articulate you try to make rubber, you put a laminate on there, you can actually clean invert cheese reef and, you know, PNSMO buzz rolls. You can hear every nuanced detail. And so, you can emulate more accurately the sensation and feel of the Kevlar, uh, because I'm sure everyone out here has heard the phrase pad hands before. Yep. Yeah, pad hands became a thing of the past. And uh, so we had been Vic Firth, I mean, I knew Neil Larvey from Cadets and earlier and whatnot. I'd been a big Firth guy. And, I mean, talk started that weekend because it was just a frenzy. And so within two years, there it was, at, you know, Vic Firth, heavy hitter. And the rest is history. The rest is history, which has, for me personally, I would say facilitated a massive amount of growth from my early drumming career to be able to take because for me it was never about making quiet practice time like i didn't care like i don't don't care i play drums i want to make noise like i don't care about that um i just want to get better when i don't have access to a drum because i think like most kids i couldn't afford to buy a marching snare drum and keep it at home and also live under the same roof as my parents um but they would tolerate the pad with the laminate it was loud but not not drum loud um so i was able to take it doing crack so that was worth something (laughs) exactly exactly uh so i take the pad home the heavy hitter pad with the laminate which was the original slim pad that i had and i I went through three or four laminates because i just drummed so freaking much on it eventually you just got to get a new one and i'd play triplet rolls or as i i knew it at the time as called exercise called gooch um and there was this tape that you could play to the gooch they called it the gooch tape uh, maybe Willie Higgins does it. I think it's an old cadets thing. I don't even know. I'm pretty sure it is. But it yeah. just gradually speeds up and speeds up and speeds up. You start at like 80 and you end up at like 220. And in the the goal was can you make it through? Um, 
And it, it took me, dude, that I attribute that pad and that gooch tape to me being able to play triplet roles at all tempos and all facets. So, yeah. man, there was a another little random story. There was a night where it's probably 1 a.m. and I was getting home from street riding BMX and I'm parking my car and three or four houses down, there's a handful of dudes out in the front yard and I see this guy crab across the sidewalk air drumming. I'm like, oh, okay. What's it? What's it? <laughs> so I move, I walk over there. It's like, hey man, you know, you're crabbing and throwing down some air beats. What's going on? Turns out it's a young Ivan Pachenko. Oh. <laughs> and so uh you know your i and e champion yep yep and so he was you know just drinking the kool-aid drumming hours and hours so like hey we got something for you to try so he became the heavy hitter pad test force and you know he would eat through this laminate okay not not that one you know i had all these different samples of materials and thicknesses and prototypes and and he would you know Thrash this one in two days. I'm like, oh, that's not the answer. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so that's a strange little connection right there. I know it would definitely take me a while to eat through the laminates, but like anything in drums, like whether it sticks, a drum head, like, I mean, if you play on it enough, it's going to wear out. But yeah. it, it was definitely like, they would last me like a month or two or something. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, now now they're, they're super good. They're bulked up mylar and it's... Yeah, they'll last a long time now. The original's not as long, but Dang, um, I'm gonna have to get a new one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sure. I haven't. I, I think mine are from like the 08, 09, 2010 era of the pads. Uh -huh. I've, I've actually got Evan's old slim pad. He gave it to me when he got an Invader pad. <laughs> I don't know why I gave you that. That's the I best was shocked. Pad I've, I've told you you can have it back. I don't. I have another pad that I like a lot. Like it's your. <laughs> Ladies your and pad. gentlemen, that is love right there. I facilitated Mike's growth. <laughs> Dude, this, I don't know what it is. I've played on a lot of different slim pads. This one, the it's like the wood density oh, and like geez, the thickness baby. of the rubber is perfect. Yeah. This thing articulates so well at the low <laughs> end. It, it's incredible. Yeah, well, stuff may or may not be in the works, so <laughs> we'll keep We'll keep the ears to the, to the yeah. wood there. Wink, wink. Um, the so you obviously... Go ahead, now go for it. I was going to say, in terms of things that last, the Billy Clubs, those those last. I've been told by people, like, I've gotten text messages, dude, those sticks don't break. So, so that's good. She's so like, are you, do you want them to? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At some point, anything is going to give. But, but that was a pretty cool thing. And those sticks are, it's one of those things where the art designed the stick. So the bead is as big as possible for the biggest footprint on the head and it's shaped where as, as flat as possible and then the hand crosses over on top gets the same footprint there they taper for the front so the first two fingers can wrap around a little further for a little bit more finesse and rectitude and then the whole thing's a little bit short just because when you're laterally going from here to there any extra length becomes extra weight exponentially so they're designed for going ballistic around the quads. So they feel short to some. And there again, there may or may not be something in the works. <laughs> well, I mean, my quad playing is relegated to like me messing around on quads most of the time. But yeah. I do teach a lot of quad players. So... 
I, I understand the shortness and the length requirement in order to like maintain the zones without like having to like pull the arms back and the shoulders back and to hit like the shot zones and all that mm-hmm. um, with the sticks to be able to still articulate the shot timbre. So I can always appreciate the nuance in that stuff as far as teaching without having to get kids to do weird things about pulling their shoulders back or weird stuff like that. So want that? <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> you don't want that. There's already enough you're fighting. You don't want to fight that <laughs> that battle. Yeah. So. But man. Uh, for any quad players out there, don't get all wrapped up in the arounds. Just become the best player you can be on one drum. That's 90% of the game is right there. If you can play great on drum two, I can get you around the drums pretty easily. That's that's the easier part of the equation for sure. Absolutely. I think that that... So you wrote... You have written a number of... Uh, books to facilitate growth through the students, uh, quad logics, rudimental logic. And I think that that is one thing that kids of that, I guess, instrumental people who want to play quads. I won't, I won't overanalyze it. People want to play quads just miss, miss out on from maybe their stock high school instructor, including myself, um, that I didn't know at an early age. Like there were just things that I didn't teach quad players how to move efficiently or just how to not overthink it or get out of their own way, as you said earlier in this podcast. Simple things, patterns that can really simplify the way that you think about it or slow down the mental aspect to where you're just like, oh, it's this pattern, or oh, it's this this Z pattern, or oh, it's this figure eight pattern. Just things that you don't teach kids um, because you don't know. And so there's definitely those books and those materials out there that can help them just take their drumming to the next level. was that kind of the motivation behind quad logics and things like that? Like, oh, there's not really a book out there that kind of breaks yeah, down it quads. Yeah, it comes back to the, well, screw it. I'll just do it. You know, nothing existed, so I filled the void with there's no quad book that talks, you know, there's no quad book at that time. And then a couple of years later, rudimental logic, there's no book out that actually tells you how to play. So here I go. Bass logic, there's no bass drum book out there. So that's where those things came from. You know, quad pads. There's no quad pad that actually works. Uh, You know, slim pad and stock pad. There's no pad that actually feels like a snare drum. Here I go. Quad stick. There's no stick that is as beefy as a mallet and yet maneuverable while feeling like a stick and getting rim shot sound. So it's kind of just trying to figure out what other people aren't doing and just say, what if? And then if you have the persistence and you just won't take no for an answer, and you're willing to accept failure and get back up and fight to the death, then you can end up with a product in your hand that serves people well. Man, I love it. I love it to death. It's obviously, I the pads themselves have speak volumes for me personally. Um, so I guess that, that segues great to like, the whole screw it mentality. I'll just do it myself. Uh, with the whole drumworkout.com. So you've mentioned it before. You teach at Marcus. You obviously have taught several, several, several private students before. Take us through, I guess, what drumworkout.com is, like what kids can get from it, where they obviously they can get it from drumworkout.com. Like what's, is it like a subscription thing? Like what's the... Yeah, it's a subscription site and it's like 20 bucks a month for everything. Or just the 44, I call it the 44 modern rudiments you need to know in order to not get cut list. 
pause, 20 bucks a month. So that, that, if people are talking about private lessons, is like Duh. super affordable. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to spend that in one 30-minute session. So Yeah, and then uh, for a whopping $7.99, the 44 modern rudiments you need to know. I mean, especially for any rudimental drum kid, like, oh my gosh, it's a no-brainer. Jump, jump into it. Um, so years ago, uh, probably 2009 or something, I went to I went to bed and I was talking to my wife and I said, "What if there's a website and you go there and there's not just a bunch of lessons because that's kind of been done, but there's a bunch of lessons and then a bunch of drum." along workouts where you actually play with me and i coach you and i laid the whole thing out like nobody has ever done this before and this should work and so it's one of those okay screw it i'm gonna do it and then sort of went into attack mode and the next thing you know the site was started up and like i said it's when i have people check in for skype lessons who have been drum workout subscribers it is ridiculous the amount of mistakes they're not making because people get information, but if you don't know how to apply it, the information is worthless. But actually playing along with me, you know, you, a given hand motion or rudiment, you get a simple exercise and you play it along with me for 25 minutes or so from slow to fast. And the whole time I'm guiding you through the technical nuances of how the technique morphs with the tempo and I'm closing all the wrong doors of the mistakes that I know I've seen everybody make. And so it really works. And like I said, the Marcus kids who had studied with me for years, like these guys know my shtick, but it's like, ooh, apparently they didn't because now it's a whole new level fast. So, and now with COVID, tons of people are, it's like a desperate scramble and they're coming up with similar things. But this was in, you know, 2013, and it's been perfected and built up ever since. So, yeah, that's yeah. workout.com. Man, it works. Drumworkout.com. Boom. That, I mean, what you're talking about is basically how I get kids to have a light bulb moment uh, that I'm yeah. private teaching. They're like, oh, I can't play Jesus. I'm like, well, what is a Jesus? I'm like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, all right, well, let's write it out. And they like write it out, and it's like, standard triplet like flam with a grace note or flam with a double on it i'm like no 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 let's let's like actually write it out like in like a three four time signature one e and two and a three and uh all right like we're gonna play it at like 60 beats for a minute and so then was like all right 60 does that feel all right after we played it for like three minutes yeah okay 64 beats per minute here we go so that method is just so tried and true. And then you get p kids to go from 60 to 120, and they're playing a quality cheese with a good grace note, a good flam, a good double, and all the taps in between are even. And you're just like, oh, yeah, if you just take the time, slow down, break it down, figure out the fundamentals about it. Boom, we're, we came full circle on fundamentals. <laughs> uh, Dude, it always comes back to fundamentals. What is this rudiment? It's a combination of double beat, Accent tap and legatos. That's all. Yeah. It's, and if you can figure is. that out in your mind and coordinate it and deconstruct it and rebuild it. Yeah. I mean, everybody's heard if you want to play fast, practice slow. Now, sometimes that's exactly what a student needs to hear, but most of the time it's wrong. So my version is if you want to play fast, 
practice as fast as you can perfectly and comfortably using the next faster tempos technique and stay there for at least 20 minutes. And that's how you will get fast. And then I've, I've got drum set players who they can play invert cheese. And they don't know it's hard. You know, an average drumline kid can't even dream of that. But because they know the molar whip and stop hand motion, because they've broken it, you know, they actually, they have all the tools. So nothing's really hard if you know how to do it. Most people just don't know how to do stuff and they keep trying it the hard way. Dude, what is it uh, that quote is like, trying to the definition of insanity is trying to do something the same way or something like that never (laughs) over and over again same way and expecting a different result different result yeah exactly (laughs) that's how most people practice there it is (laughs) well i i I played this i played along with the uh scv 2004 in the lot tape i don't know which is i only know that because i used to do that um the uh, 2004 it's like oh i can play flamis and double beat and cheese poos and all this stuff and then i was like oh this doesn't sound very good though (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah you got to record it and listen back and start to get some truth serum happening dude that's a great that's actually a uh, awesome tool that i've started doing in the last year or so is recording things with my kids and then i sent them like we're gonna go listen to this (laughs) i do that all the time that's one of the biggest things that i like try to check off the list as soon as possible teaching them to actually listen and pay attention to how they sound like what yep. what sounds are you producing? And most of the time when you make them slow down and like you ask them, like they play something, it's like, all right, what was wrong with that? Like how did that sound to you? Because I'm not going to be here in front of you to do this for you when you're yeah, practicing. That's like one of the first things I try to hammer home with any new student. It's like listen to yourself. Yep. All this technical stuff, it's purely for sound and musicality. Self-analyzing. What does it sound like? What does it feel like? Yeah. Yeah. The thing about take the truth serum, it just reminded me, I haven't thought about this for years, but sometimes at North Texas, something shout, we're going to be like, guys, just take a step back and feel the shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Dude, uh, I love that. Well, oh my gosh. Did we hit hey, everything, Evan? If, uh, if we're doing a little product jam, the. Yeah. I haven't come around to the books I had published through Modern Drummer. And they're not like drum set books for hands. They are just, if you have sticks and you want to sound good and be able to play anything under the sun, grab those up. I'll serve you all too. One's called Stick Technique and the other is Rhythm and Chops Builders with tons of, you know, rhythmic tweakers and all kinds of stuff. Actually, I looked back through after we talked about that previously, and I have the Rhythms and Chop Builders one. Oh, I was like, cool. oh, I have that book. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> so, but yeah, absolutely. So check out, obviously, super grateful for Bill and the imprint that he has had on the activity. For sure. Um, with the books, the information that he's put out, drumworkout.com, the heavy hitter pad itself is, I would say, a staple and an icon to modern drumming wow, i mean thank you that's just my opinion but i think it's valid <laughs> cool. so. thank, thank you very much i'm flattered i appreciate it yeah yeah man thanks for sure for coming on and hanging out with us so i think on that it's a good note to close out on so i'll reiterate briefly the spiel 
Subscribe on YouTube, like, comment, join the conversation. Facebook, Instagram, Lone Star Percussion, discount code aged out. Save 10 bucks on orders $50 or more. Uh, Patreon.com slash aged out podcast. And check out all the stuff we talked about. What's the website called again, Bill? Drumworkout.com. Drumworkout.com. It'll get the job done. We'll see everybody next time. Peace. Thanks, you guys.